Hey there, and welcome to the Box Office Watch Podcast, where we keep watch on how much money movies are making and why. This is the show recapping the weekend of October 8th through the 10th, 2021. My name is Paulo, and I'm your host. Hope everyone is doing well out there. Apologies for the late episode this week. Monday was a sort of holiday in my job, so rather than trying to being responsible and actually doing the episode on my day off, I decided to take the whole day off and uh, recharge instead, um, which then led to Tuesday, which was actually pretty busy with work. So haven't been able hadn't didn't have a chance to actually uh do the podcast until uh this afternoon on wednesday um in any case you know let's get let's go ahead and hop this hopefully sort of episode um so we can keep catch up on what happened last weekend Starting with the domestic numbers, the big story going into this week was, of course, the release of the latest Bond film, No Time to Die, here in the States. It's been particularly well-received abroad, especially in the UK, but would that translate over to the States given Bond's historical emphasis on the international markets? The answer is... Kind of. Uh, Bond opened to $555.2 million, sorry, $55.2 million in 4,407 theaters, served per theater average of $12,531. Given last week's opening, with Venom taking in $90 million, it was a bit of a disappointment for people who had upped their forecast of Bond to match that or even to even get to the $100 million mark. Based on free sales from Fandango being the best ever for the post-pandemic, uh, and you know other places as well, um, you know some even uh, some who are even a bit more conservative were thinking maybe seventy to eighty million uh, for opening weekend, and you know box office pros had it at eighty-four million. So you know while the elusive post-pandemic hundred million dollar opening is still probably going to be pushed back to next month, uh, the question remains of what happened to Bond given all of the hype coming into this weekend. First off, it's not a matter of quality. It's generally in line with other Craig Bond films for a cinema score. No Time to Die got an A minus, as did Casino Royale and Spectre. Quantum of Solace was a bit of a stinker at B minus, while Skyfall got a solid A. On Rotten Tomatoes, it clocks in at an 84% compared to Skyfall and Casino Royale's low 90s, while Spectre and Quantum of Solace were closer to the mid to low 60s. So, not a quality issue by any means. It certainly had its distribution uh, distribution behind it. 4,407 theaters is the widest release to date post-pandemic. Uh, the date was a bit odd for Bond film, granted. Uh, it is the first non-November release since, I believe, 97 uh, with Tomorrow Never Dies. Um, part of that, I think, was the fact that there was you know, obviously the weird release schedule shifting around due to COVID and you know, earlier, earlier on in its production cycle, um, you know, issues with the uh, initial director. Um, and you know, and on top of that, with the while Bond kind of was was slowly moving back bit by bit, um, you know, Paramount actually had moved, I think, and put uh, Miss Impossible Seven in the November slot, and when it moved that, it put Top Gun Maverick in there uh, before Bond could. So you know, they didn't want to compete against that. Um, and so yeah, that and even if they ended up pulling it out, Bond it was too late for Bond to move into that slot by that point. Um, it also is the longest Bond filmed ever at about two hours and forty three minutes long. Uh, the biggest impact of this being. I think older folks who would make up, you know, the majority of Bond audience uh, might not have been able to last through the film. And also, you know, theaters um, couldn't add additional screenings. You know, if you have a shorter film, um, you can run maybe five or six times in a given day versus, you know, a longer film like Bond, which is maybe like four or five times. Those extra times kind of do add up over time. Now, again, there had been a concern lately that, you know, elderly folks are not coming out to the movies lately. You know, films targeted toward that demographic, largely the award films such as Cry Macho or Respect, have not been doing super well at the box office. And AMC, again, hired Nicole Kidman to do ads to try to draw in the older audience. However, with Bond, the over 45 audience did show up, actually, making 36% of the audience. Not over-indexing, but, you know, there were polls showing that a third of those, um, you know, 
uh, over over 35 years old, Bond was their first movie back in theaters after two years, indicating that many people who had not been going to the movie theaters finally came out for the big event film that is Bond. Um, now, that being said, Bond... You know, I think the word lacking is not the older audience who didn't over-index but still came out, but rather I think it's Bond having trouble connecting with the younger audience here. Um, while No Time to Die had 36% above 45 years old coming out to see Bond, uh, the more recent Bond film, Spectre, only had 29% be over 45, indicating that fewer young people are coming out for this recent film. Another way of looking at it, Venom had 64% of their audience be 18 to 34, versus only 39% for Bond. Now, anecdotally, the older Bond, um, now, anecdotally, I, I think that people are saying the reason is, you know, having an older Bond, Daniel Craig being 53 years old when he was 38 when the, he started as Bond back in, you know, 15 years ago, and also the somewhat dated archetype of Bond being a spy, you know, as, as a spy, might not be resonating with newer Gen Z audiences. I'd expect in the next iteration, they cast someone much younger to be Bond, and, you know, we capture that younger audience. Not to mention, you know, this is the fifth Craig Bond film. Uh, younger audience may feel like they can't hop in with an easy starting point. Kind of like how it is with Doctor Who, whenever, you know, it's hard to jump in the middle of a Doctor's run, uh, you have to kind of wait till the regeneration comes around. It's kind of the same situation with Bond here. So, you know, if you didn't grow up with Bond, you might, and, you know, you might wait, until, you might not check it out until the next one comes along. You know, if you were, say, 25 years old now, you'd have been 10 years old when the first one came out, and there's a good chance your parents might not have let you see in that film. Um, so you know you might not you might doesn't possibly an entire generation who just missed the Bond train. On the bright side for Bond, though, this isn't the lowest opening for the franchise to date, even for Daniel Craig. Uh, Casino Royale, Craig's first film as Bond, which came out in 2006, opened to $40.8 million. Now, granted, that was 2006 numbers, so with inflation, that would be about $54 million in today's uh, money. Uh, pretty similar number to where No Time to Die opening weekend ended up at. Granted, the budget also has ballooned since then from $102 million in 2006 to $250 million this year, not to mention all the delays caused by COVID, resulting in what many are reporting as a 900 million worldwide break-even point. Um, though, as we noted last week, again, Bond is Bond, and given the circumstances, even if it is at a pretty heavy loss um, between you know the brand name and you know the fact that Amazon's acquiring MGM soon, it's not as though more films won't get made. They might be a little bit more strict with the budget, perhaps, um, but I think it's definitely going to continue on. You know that, that said, also Bond has skewed international heavy historically. Of the Daniel Craig films, the one that had the largest share of the total revenue come from the U.S. was Quantum of Solace, which had 28.6% of its revenue coming from domestic markets. Uh, the average of the last four films is about 26.7%. Now, meanwhile, looking at the MCU, it's by the way, it's crazy. They've put out 25 films in the same time it did that um, Bond, uh, Daniel Craig has been around as Bond and only put out five films. Um, but anyway, uh, their films have a share, have, you know, the, the, share, the, the film of the MCU that has the least share of being international uh, is uh, and uh, being domestic rather is is Endgame with only thirty point six percent. Next closest being Thor: Dark World at thirty two percent, and Black Panther is the highest share at fifty two percent. On average, MCU films average about thirty nine percent of the total revenue coming from the domestic market, a full ten is percent points higher uh, than you know thirteen even percent points even higher than what an average Bond film would make in the states percentage wise. So, you know, it makes sense that, you know, even though it was doing well abroad, that might not translate to the success here in the States. 
Um, now, as far as where we're heading towards, historically, Bond films have had an average multiplier of about 3.2x um, uh, domestically, maybe varying from 2.5x from Quantum of Solace, which wasn't very well received, to Casino Royale, which had a 4x multiplier. Um, at a 3.2x multiplier, that would give Bond about $176.6 million domestically, um, not quite a $200 million mark, though um, a, uh, a 4x multiplier would get there. So, you know, with the same multiplier of about 26% domestically that would put an estimate of about 679 million presumably with china in play as well um about 550 million without china possibly getting as high as 750 million worldwide given china's growth in the past few years uh, currently it sits at 257 overseas for 313 million total thus far in 66 markets now moving on to second place, we have the second weekend of Venom Let There Be Carnage. This one made $31.7 million in 4,225 theaters, per theater average of 7,516, a drop of about 65%. That seems pretty steep, but this was the risk it took with Bond coming out in its second weekend uh, to cut, potentially cut off its legs. Still, Venom has crossed the $100 million mark in only five days, same as Sang-Chi, uh, hitting $141.4 million thus far. Uh, and with the holiday numbers, you know, for, 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 um, for this post past Monday, it's pacing ahead of the first Venom film, though I'm not sure if it'll keep that up. Uh, the first film only dropped 56% in the second weekend, though again, it didn't have any serious competition back then. It's, I'm uncertain if Venom will get to 200 million domestically. With that drop, it's going to be pretty tight, and it is pacing behind Shang-Chi as of the 10-day mark, despite opening higher, though it's still pacing ahead of Black Widow. Um, and that, that's not even thinking about the competition on the horizon. Still, it's basically guaranteed to break even at this point with a $110 million budget, so you can expect a third one announced at some point. Uh, so far worldwide, Venom sits at $43 million in 13 markets, or about $184 million worldwide. In third place, we have the second weekend of the Addams Family 2 animated film, coming in at $10.1 million, $4,207, a 42% drop for a per year average of $2,404. Running domestic total is $31 million with another $4 million or so abroad, bringing its lifetime total up to $35 million. Assuming the $24 million budget of the first one, this one should be profitable soon if it hasn't already gotten there. Honestly, not bad, given that it released on streaming at the same day. I guess there really isn't much kid-friendly out there right now, so um, it definitely, I think, it plays a factor into this. Uh, fourth place, Shang-Chi hangs in there week 6 for a 29% drop to $4.3 million in 2,800 theaters, per theater average of 1,539. Cumulative domestic total so far is $212.5 million, with another $188 million abroad, pushing it to over the $400 million mark worldwide, and that's all without China's help. Um, the second film to do so without, uh, uh, you know, without China, um, which, uh, you know, the first one being F9. Currently sits at a number six for the highest grossing film of all year, behind Godzilla vs. Kong's $467 million. Uh, finally, in fifth place, we have the Many Saints of Newark dropping like a rock it dumped, dumped into the river uh, in week two, thanks to the HBO Max Day and Date release, 69% down to $1.4 million in 3,181 theaters, per theater average of $446 and a running total of $7.3 million domestic, $10 million once you include the $3 million made abroad. Now, all this, you know, doom and gloom about Many Shades of Newark aside, I think you can't write this film off as a complete failure. As a prequel to The Sopranos, it actually inspired new records for the series, with the 15-year-old series breaking HBO Max records and having the highest daily viewership in service history, uh, which is music to Jason Keillor's ears. 
Now, outside the top five, a couple new releases. A24 released a weird Icelandic supernatural horror film called Lamb in 583 theaters, netting uh, a cool million dollars for uh, eighth place and a per theater average of 1,715. Um, and in 10th place, the Indian Tamil language film Doctor uh, released in 119 theaters and made $220,000 per theater average of 1,849. Further down the list, we have the National Geographic documentary The Rescue about the Thai cave rescue operation a few uh, a few uh, years back opening to only 69.6 nice thousand uh, dollars but in five theaters for per theater average of 1,000 or $13,932 the highest per theater average of the week and then also we saw the Forever Purge ending its run at $77 million off of an $18 million production budget while F9 finally left theaters for good at $173 million flat that's actually pretty much exactly what the spinoff Hobbs and Saw made um, in the pre-pandemic world so you know maybe a, a million or so less which you know again given the declining box office uh, uh numbers of the fan size it isn't exactly bad to stabilize out in the pandemic here Overall, we got our second $100 million weekend of the year with $108 million total, uh, only about 20% or so behind the same weekend from 2019. This coming weekend, we have Halloween Kills set to release on Peacock as well as in theaters, forecasted for 40 to $55 million, which honestly seems surprising at first glance, but seems to actually be held up based on the pre-sales. Um, and then we also have The Last Duel from Ridley Scott, starring Adam Driver and Matt Damon, for 5 to $12 million as well. This is definitely the uh, older arts house, uh, older audience arts house film for the weekend. And of course, Dune comes out the week after that. Um, there is perhaps talks that because of the older audience coming out to Bond, that films like The Last Duel um, and Defense Dispatch coming out the same weekend as Bond in LA and New York, um, and the other increasing number of Oscar hopefuls in the coming months, um, that, you you know, they'll they'll be in a better place because of you know Bond opening the the seal on elderly people coming back to theaters. I don't think that's the case, honestly, because you know Bond is a special case. You know, people were holding out to see Bond in theaters. Um, who knows though? I'd like I'd love to be wrong. Um, we'll definitely keep an eye on Wes Anderson's Defense Dispatch and the Last Duel to see how they do with the older audiences. Um, and also, randomly, we got the fi the new release date for Hotel Transylvania 4, which uh, had been put on the Amazon with no new release date coming and going. Um, it's going to be coming out on January 14th on Amazon, uh, which is the same day when the Oscar animated hopeful um, Bell from Japan, from Mamoru Hosoda, uh, will make its U.S. release from G-Kids. Now, before we get to our international numbers, a quick message from our friends over at the ContraZoom podcast, where they go back and forth about film. Uh, this week, Dakota and friends talked about the A24 film Spring Breakers. Uh, some fun box office facts about this film. Um, off a production budget of $5 million, it made about $14 million domestically, plus another $17 million abroad for a total box office of $31 million. It opened in a limited release in March uh, 2013 to only $263,000, but you know, a per theater average of 87 $6,000 across three theaters. It went wide the following weekend in over a thousand theaters for a biggest weekend, uh, the second weekend, the biggest weekend being $4.8 million. Anyway, here's Dakota. Hi, this is Dakota, host of ContraZoom Pod, where we go back and forth about film. I am obsessed with movies. I could talk about them all day. If you're like me, then you'll love my podcast. Every week we take a new topic, whether it's ranking a director's filmography, covering major film festivals, or getting way into Oscar season. While every week is different, we do have some recurring topics, like our Make Remake series looking at an original film and its remake, or our very popular A History Of program, taking an in-depth look looking at some of the biggest companies involved in film, including Criterion, A24, and Neon. 
It isn't all super serious topics, though, as we always need to play catch-up with all the hottest Marvel Cinematic Universe news and general pop culture goings-on. There's something for every kind of movie lover, whether you want reviews, interviews, or in-depth conversations. ContraZoomPod is found on all podcatcher apps, and visit ContraZoomPod.com for even more information. All right. Uh, moving on to our international numbers. Bond has passed 50 million pounds at the UK, sitting at 71 million pounds thus far over there, the fourth highest title for Universal there to date. Um, Venom made $20 million in de- by debuting in Latin America, which is pretty solid, though a bit behind where the original film was pacing, um, but that's understandable given capacity restraints. Um, Dune now sits at $117 million worldwide in 32 markets. Disney hit $2 billion at the total box office in 2021, the first film to do so. And it's not over yet with what's more on the way. Uh, we also, I also saw this morning that the Philippines is actually going to be reopening uh, movie theaters in the Metro Manila area with 30% capacity as well. Uh, moving to China specifically, the Battle of Lake Changjin continues to steadily make its way to the top of the chart for the year so far. It came in first place this weekend again with 109 million US dollars. Um, no longer supported by the uh, by the holiday weekend, um, National Day. Still, you know, very solid performance. Um, in addition to last weekend um, and the weekday numbers, it now sits at 638.4 million so far. That is the fourth highest film so far, well ahead of Godzilla vs Kong's 467 million and coming up on Detective Chinatown 3 at $686 million. Could very well pass F9's $716 million and become a battle with Hai Mom uh, and Lake Changjing for the number one of the year with Hai Mom currently sitting at about $820 million or so. In second place, my country, my parents, dropped pretty hard without the national holiday supporting it. It dropped 74%, um, as opposed to Cheng Jin dropping 47%. Um, it made $19 million this weekend and $183 million to date. In third place, youth sports comedy Waterboys made $1.4 million to add to $7.2 million winning total. Uh, fourth place, animated film Dear Tutu Operation T-Rex uh, with $672,000 and $7.1 million winning total. And an animated kids film Little Canned Man rounds of the top five with $584,000 uh, and $7.6 million to date. Um, both of these last two fell about 80%, uh, which is pretty steep. Um, thus far, the Chinese box office for the year has just crossed 40 billion yuan, or about 6.2 billion US dollars. At this point, no release seems imminent for Sanxi or the Eternal, so October 22nd with Dune or October 29th for Bond will be the next Western releases out there. Uh, no word yet on Venom or No Way Home either, though I would hope that they get in there. I did see one speculation that China doesn't want another film uh, to dethrone Hai Mom aside from uh, potentially Lake Changjin, so yeah, that might be why they're holding out on these major blocks bus releases to you know have that soft bragging right right there Anyway, beyond the numbers, there's a couple of headlines to look into for the industry. Uh, first up, speaking of the Eternals, uh, tickets went on sale this past Monday. It apparently is the best-selling pre-selling first-day pre-selling movie in 2021 to date, with 2.7 million sold in the first 24 hours, ahead of Black Widow and Shang-Chi and Dune in that order, beating Shang-Chi's numbers in about six hours. Uh, this could possibly be 90 to 110 million dollar opening weekend. Fingers crossed. It does have a super long runtime of about 150 minutes. The second longest in the MCU with two post-credit scenes. Um, the Marvel machine moves on with domestically the top five films for this weekend for this year, and open and domestic totals likely going to all Marvel films with Black Widow, Shang-Chi, The Eternals, Venom, and No Way Home taking those uh, those titles. So truly impressive what Disney's been able to do. Um, 
now uh, Black Widow. Now, other Disney news, uh, Black Widow, uh, you know, after resolving the lawsuit uh, last week, um, went to Disney Plus for free uh, on October 6th, uh, with about a million households watching it in its first five days. Star Wars Vism saw pretty good performance for a TV show on Disney Plus the week it came out as well, just below demand for Squid Game, which, you know, sat out to them for becoming uh, Netflix's all-time most viewed series at 111 million households. Um, James Gunn confirmed that Will Poulter from Midsommar and Where the Millers will play Adam Warlock in Guardians of the Galaxy 3. And then Alan Horn, uh, the chief creative officer of Disney Studios, also end up, is planning on retiring at the end of this year. Um, Alan Bergman will continue to oversee the film division after Alan Horn leaves. Now moving beyond Disney to another film with pre-sales, Dune had a pretty solid start to pre-sales, as I mentioned, being the top five post-COVID so far, but it seems that those are mostly buoyed by IMAX and premium large format screenings uh, versus regular screenings, so it may not have the legs to poten- uh, that we potentially are hoping for, especially after that first initial was the book, it seems to have slowed down significantly. Now, this past weekend, I was at New York Comic Con, and while I didn't get to see it, Jason Reitman uh, surprised attendees to his Ghostbusters panel by screening the entire film um, for them, uh, the second time after showing it at CinemaCon in August. Reviews are starting to come in, and uh, things are looking good, 81% on Rotten Tomatoes. Also at New York Comic Con, a new Dragon Ball Super movie was announced, though the response was comparatively much more lukewarm. Uh, NBC Universal announced that Kelly Campbell would be the new president of Peacock after leaving. He left Hulu, which apparently, according to some reports, have gotten pretty toxic after Disney took over completely. Um, in other staffing news, Cillian Murphy has been confirmed for Nolan's new upcoming Oppenheimer film, which Universal confirmed uh, they would accommodate the hundred-day window f- uh, for July 2023. Though it would declare it would be the exception and not the rule for all films. Anola might be jealous, though, of the arthouse film Memoria. According to distributor Neon, who picked it up uh, after the New York Film Fest, um, you know, the Thai-directed uh, film shot in Colombia that won the jury grand prize at Cannes and screened at the New York Film Festival last week. Um, the film will be on a perpetual roadshow release model, playing in only one theater at a time from week to week, with no intent of ever being put on DVD, on demand, or streaming, at least in the U.S., now, apparently overseas, the distribution is going to be handled differently, but uh, it's certainly taking the theatrical window to an extreme, and there certainly was no negative pushback against this on film Twitter at all. No siree. Um, also, a bit of an ambitious move, Russ is getting ahead of Tom Cruise uh, with their space film um, with an actress and a film producer docking at the ISS last week uh, with the first multi-person film crew ever to film there for its film called The Challenge. Sorry, Tom Cruise. And perhaps the most ambitious news of all this week, uh, with half the studios in town boycotting them and NBC not televising the ceremony, uh, the Hollywood Foreign Press Association is planning on going ahead with the Golden Globes. I wonder how they're going to pull all that off and be relevant at all. And also, you know, I I, I, I basically had written this up to be recorded yesterday, but things got busy and... Uh, some breaking news, actually. The IATSE, uh, in their ongoing struggle with the with the studios, um, has authorized a vote. Uh, we, we heard about the, the, uh, the union members authorizing a vote at something like a 98% approval rate. Um, well, it turns out that they have set a deadline for the studios to acquiesce to their demands um, you know, of October 18th. So if you know things aren't locked down in, I guess, the next five days as of when I'm recording this, um, we're going to see people going on strike at midnight um, and potentially shut down uh, Hollywood, um, which be pretty pretty big deal um, if that were to come to pass. So we'll see if the studios end up blinking and giving in um, to what the uh, what the union is wanting. 
Anyway, before signing off, a, a quick review of Venom, which I actually saw on Friday before Comic-Con. Overall, I enjoyed it. I did enjoy the first one. Uh, pretty much like the first one, it's a bit of a turn-your-brain-off anti-hero action film. Um, nothing too deep thematically. Um, that being said, the Venom and Eddie Brock dynamic is as good as ever. It's, hopefully it would be, given Tom Hardy voices both of them. Um, and hope. And honestly, there were jokes about just how... There were jokes how the first one was just low-key a romance. Um, and it came out like on Valentine's Day and all that. Honestly, I think they fully lent into that here, um, and I'm all for that. You know, Venom is the queer icon that we didn't know we needed, but we're glad we have. Oh, and of course, you know, that post-credit scene. Um, no spoilers here, but I'm more hyped than ever to see where Sony takes their uh, Spider-Man universe in the near future for sure. With that, that's a wrap for this episode. Suit me ideas for what else I should be covering via email at boxofficewatchpodcast at zealand.com or on Twitter at boxofficewatchpodcast. You can find our show on Spotify, iTunes, and Google Play. Make sure you subscribe and leave a review or at the very least tell a friend any of that helps. If you're feeling extra, you must consider supporting us on Patreon, which lets me make not only this show, but all the other podcasts I work on. Link to all that in our show notes. Also in the show notes, make sure you check out, again, the ConfraZoom pod. Um, you know, Dakota has a, running a great sip over there and you know definitely uh, enjoy listening to his podcast. So use it every given and check out. Uh, numbers used in the show come from dnumbers.com, intro and outro from Kevin MacLeod at incompetent.filmusu.io, at the introduction by Ninja Warrior Media. Till next time, this has been the Box Office Watch Podcast. And remember, our watch goes on. Mm-hmm.